sometimes we get overwhelmed by all the problems in the world. And one of the things I love about the Oakland Peace Center is it's a one-stop shop. You can do pretty much anything there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a reminder that you don't have to do everything. As long as you choose one thing to invest yourself in, you're making the world a better place. And you're doing so with a community that's doing all sorts of other things as well. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Uh, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And like always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Of course. My name is Shonda Rani Ja. Uh, we met because I am the founder of the Oakland Peace Center, which is at the intersection of spirituality and social justice. So kind of right down your lane, Maurice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm actually up to right now is I'm an anti-oppression and anti-racism consultant. I work with, believe it or not, corporations as well as nonprofits and higher education institutions and faith communities to build out their skills with anti-oppression work. Uh, I think part of what led me down that path is I've been doing versions of community organizing work for about 25 years at this point in my life. And that was what led me to this point. And actually, while we're talking, I'm not in my beloved home of Oakland. I'm on the central coast of California because I am on a writing retreat. Uh, I'm working on my next book, which is about how connecting with the spiritual and cultural practices of our ancestors Mm -hmm. can equip us for the work of dismantling white supremacy. So that's something that has come out of all of my years of work and watching people burning out Mm -hmm. and watching people not having a lot of internal resources while doing some of the hardest work you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And this was a, a thing I saw a lot of folks doing that was giving them the strength to continue the work over long periods of time. And I realized that's something I'd like to be able to share with everybody who's interested in the work of justice. What are the tools that can help us stay in the work, stay grounded, and keep the movement sustainable? Wow. Can I piggyback a little bit about, you know, you mentioning burnout and, you know, Mm -hmm. that's related with mental health as well. Because, um, yes, we met actually during my second 100-mile walk when I walked through the Bay Area. Yeah. And... um, yeah, at that time you were, I think, the director or, or mm-hmm. of the Peace Center. Yeah. Um, and now you're not working there anymore, only as a, as a consultant, I understood. That's right. That's right. So is one of the reasons that you stopped that work, burnout and, and, uh, or not? It was trying to prevent burnout, although mm-hmm. it might have been a little bit of burnout. I think that's okay. probably true. It was more 
that I suddenly realized I wasn't doing any work that I felt particularly good at. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing any work that was giving me any energy. And I was used to that. I had been doing that for years because that's Mm -hmm. what it means to be an executive director for most people. But I suddenly had a realization it didn't have to be that way. Hmm. So the staff was willing to have conversations about pivoting to a horizontal staffing structure so that we don't have an executive director anymore. The staff is holding the responsibility equally and uh, navigating the decisions as a collective. So it lines up with the values of the organization even better. And it means I don't have to spend the rest of my life doing work that I really hate. (laughs) Wow. So it worked worked both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just before we started uh, recording this conversation, you know, I, I was, um, yeah, because I had found out that you had have written a lot of books in the last <laughs> two years or so. So that's the result of, of you know, you having more time now or, or yet uh, tell us a little well, bit about that. Well, la- this is the first time that I'm doing a book and just making it part of my job mm-hmm. up to this point. The books have all been the result of a sense of urgent need, and I've written them in the cracks and crevices of my other work. So, yeah, I've written four books, all published with Chalice Press. Mm -hmm. One of them was about the history of people of color in my denomination, because all of the history books about uh, my church were written as if only white people had created the history when that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. The second book was about uh, race and religion. It came out not long after the murder of Michael Brown. There was a Mm. sense in the church that they needed some resources to have the conversations that were necessary in order to engage racial justice across all of our diversity. Uh, the third book was about how regular people could affect community change. Mm -hmm. That one came out not that long after, um, Donald Trump was elected to office and people were feeling a lot of despair. And the purpose of that book was to remind people we still have the capacity to affect change neighborhood by neighborhood and build up power to create collective power. And I think that's what we've been doing. And then the last book really was intended in many ways to help people who were exhausted and fatigued and putting their best selves into the work and needed a word of encouragement and support. And that's Liberating Love, which is a daily devotional, mm-hmm. uh, which is written from a progressive spiritual uh, perspective, which is unusual for a daily devotional. I, I would like to ask you a couple of uh, questions about you know, your own personal journey. So, you know, where were you born, your, your roots, uh, what did you study? G- give us give us some, yeah, a little bit of your, or your background story. Absolutely. So my father was from West Bengal, India, mm-hmm. and my mother is from Scotland, Glasgow. 
and they met at a college dance. It was it was the stuff that romance movies are made of. And <laughs> despite both families opposing the relationship, and despite the fact that interreligious and interracial marriages were uh, not accepted in those days, mm-hmm. they transcended all of those barriers. I was born in England, and we moved to Akron, Ohio, when I was a toddler. Wow. So. I am I am technically an immigrant. I am a naturalized citizen in this country. And I am really grateful for I am really grateful for parents who taught me to create family out of quality people instead of just people related to me by biology. They taught me that lesson early because we didn't have any people in this country. We mm-hmm. had to create a family of choice and uh, mixed race couples and uh, immigrants and people who were not always considered the norm in Akron, Ohio, were who we made our community out of. And that has really served me well as a lesson. Hmm. You actually can choose who your family is and you want to choose based on them being good, generous, compassionate people. Because that's who's going to help you be your most generous, compassionate self as well. Mm. So I went to college in Baltimore and ended up working uh, in Congress and then working for a national religious liberty organization and then going to grad school in Chicago and working for my denomination's regional manifestation, our diocese. And then working for a local church and helping turn it into a local nonprofit. So people sometimes say, I have a career of devolution. I don't have a career evolution. I have career devolution. And I really love doing work that is deeply relational work at this point in time. I was making small differences for a lot of people when I worked in Congress. And at this point in time, I get to make big differences in my immediate community. And that feels really good. Wow. I think both I, matter. Yeah. 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 I, a, a quick question about that. You did not have family in the U S so still had family in, in Scotland and in India, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Do you still, are you still in connection with them? Yeah, very much so. Um, both sides had rejected my parents for their marriage, mm-hmm. but uh, my father's side came around a lot faster. So I've been raised much more with my Indian culture. Okay. Uh, I was the one who ended up kind of bullying my grandmother in Scotland to enter back into relationship with us. Uh-huh. But by the time she died, both of my parents were at her bedside and my father was hands down her favorite member of the family. So, mm. um, so all sorts of reconciliation did ultimately happen on both sides. And when my father passed away, I was able to take my father's ashes back to India in 2019 mm. so that my whole family there could be a part of the Hindu ritual yeah. of, um, of his ashes returning to the Ganges. They made sure I was part of the the ceremony. They made sure that I was chanting the Sanskrit and pouring the ghee over the ashes mm-hmm. and all of the all of the various parts of that ceremony. I have no idea what I said and I don't uh-huh. think they thought that mattered. All that mattered was <laughs> that I was doing doing that ritual the way yeah, yeah. all of our previous generations had. And uh, so that was 
that was pretty special that they made sure that I got centered when the whole point of me taking the ashes back to India was so that they could be centered. Uh, they're, mm. they're pretty special folks. We spent a lot of time in the ancestral village together. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And I, I assume you were raised in, with the English language. So you, you didn't yes. speak Bangla. Yeah. So yeah, my father, yeah, I'm, I'm part of that generation that is very sad about the fact that our parents wanted to give us the advantage and so didn't teach us our, uh, our ancestral languages. Mm -hmm. So I had to teach myself Bengali when I was, uh, in my late twenties. Okay. Uh, I, and my father was so proud once I did. And yeah. I think my family by and large is really glad that I did. Although my Bengali is still not very good. But yeah, when I was a baby, my father would speak to me in Bengali. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I started to talk, he stopped. Because having an accent, having English as a second language had been such a disadvantage to him. And everybody, every parent wants their children to have all the advantages. And we didn't know the science well enough then to know that while, you know, while my linguistic formation would be slower if I learned both languages, that ultimately I would be better off. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the accepted science at the time. Mm -hmm. So I continue to be sad about that. Uh, and there's there's some things I'll never be able to fully connect with because I'm never going to get to that level of fluency. But mm -hmm. just holding on to a little bit of it, to being able to say those things that I had grown up hearing around me, I'm really grateful I got to do that. Great that you were able to to go back and and do that. That's that's beautiful. From Baltimore, I went to Washington D.C. to work in Congress. Okay. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. And then I went to grad school in Chicago. So growing up in Akron, growing up as the daughter of someone from uh, an industrial town and growing up in a post-industrial town, I think, made a big difference in my life. So when I ended up in Baltimore, another post-industrial town, mm -hmm. I got very quickly engaged in worker justice. Uh, and that's been a through line. So I ended up doing, uh, you know, support of labor justice campaigns, even on my college campus. I went to work for a congressman from Akron, Ohio, who was deeply committed to workers' rights. I got involved with um, Interfaith Committee for Worker Justice. Uh, when I moved out to the Bay Area, I'm really active in a lot of labor campaigns. And that was why I was so excited to listen to your your episode with Yasmin, because mm -hmm. the technology she's talking about, we actually fought and got that implemented in Oakland. Hmm. Uh, the So uh, Faith Alliance for a Moral Economy was really active in a campaign to make sure that hotel workers mm -hmm. who were at very high risk of sexual assault yeah. would have those clickers on them mm -hmm. so that if they were attacked by um, customers, they could notify the front desk, they could get protection, and we got legislation passed that anybody who was engaged in sexual assault gets added to a registry so that if they go to another hotel, mm -hmm. that hotel knows that that's a sexual predator and can protect their workers. So 
I was thrilled to yeah. hear about the person who developed the technology that <laughs> we then won this big campaign around in Oakland a few years That's, back. That, she would love to, to yeah. hear that. And, and so for the listeners, um, we're talking here about the previous episode with um, Jasmine Mustafa, who was the, is the CEO of Roar for Good. And indeed, she developed, um, her company developed um, a device that... Uh, yeah, that is now used in, in the hospitality uh, yeah. sector, which is uh, really great. Although, you know, you would agree, ultimately, we hope that those devices are not, you know, not necessary anymore. It's so right? sad she had to invent yeah, it in the first exactly. place. I yeah. don't think people realize, because that wasn't the only campaign I have worked on where one of the things that workers were fighting for was protection from sexual assault. Oh. And we don't realize the women cleaning uh Building, buildings, you know, uh, in uh, late at night are often victims of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And often the predators are the managers of the cleaning companies because they know the schedules mm -hmm. of the women cleaning those office suites. Uh, and so these are things that we don't always think about. But once you meet somebody who has gone through it, I can't imagine anybody being uh, left unmoved by that. And so yeah. there's a sense of urgency once you learn about it. I'm grateful that we've started having those conversations so we can create those protections and mm -hmm. call people to account. It's a lot of what, uh, it's a lot of the most important work I do is around um, people being treated with dignity in the workplace. It's yeah. one of the most spiritual practices I'm engaged in. Yeah. And that was during your time at the Peace Center that you... Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. East Bay Alliance for a Sustainable Economy is one of the Oakland Peace Center partners. So the, yeah, the origin story of the Oakland Peace Center was I was pastoring a tiny little congregation mm -hmm. in a very big building. And we did some discernment about what they wanted to contribute to the community. And people don't live in Oakland very people don't live in Oakland without having lost people to violence in the streets. Mm -hmm. And so what that little congregation, you know, 15, 20 people decided they wanted to focus on was creating peace in the midst of violence. Mm -hmm. And we began to build relationships with organizations that were working to stem the tide of violence in Oakland, which was famous for its levels of violence in those days. And in the course of forming those relationships, we discovered a lot of those organizations' effort went into raising enough money for rent and having to do all of this fundraising and having to worry about whether they could find space for their programs and their trainings. And we realized we had that space and wouldn't their lives be easier if we could provide them very affordable space for their offices, for their trainings, so that they could focus their work on actually ending violence. And my congregation didn't have the energy to create an anti-violence program themselves, but they had a resource they could make available to those folks. And we could also play the role of bringing all of those organizations together to support each other, encourage each other, resource each other. And that's work that's still going on today. So even folks who don't have a lot of energy can actually have a major contribution to the work of creating a better world. Oh, yeah. And and I, I really would like to invite the listeners to check out uh, the Peace Center. We'll make sure that, you know, in the in the podcast notes, we will mention that so they can check it out, all the activities. When I was yeah visiting um, 
many years ago now, I don't know, nine, 10, um, I was really impressed with, with the, well, all the, the, the important things that you do and, and, and your colleagues and your friends. Um, yeah, I, I got a lot of uh, energy out of out of that because you you know we can be overwhelmed by all the, yes. the difficulties in the world and the challenges. But if you, yeah, if you go to the peace center and you see the, you know, yes, you hear tough stories, but you also, um, I came I came away from the visit uh, with a lot of hope, uh, actually. So and you know people that were able to change their lives for the better. So a lot of kudos to you and, and uh, yeah, all, all the people that work there. So that's, I that's get really, really great. excited. I get really excited when people get to connect with those stories because it's a reminder of how many different ways we can make a difference, mm -hmm. right? There's, you, you got to hang out with Belinda at Project Darius and that's somebody yeah, who yes, yeah. took the, her son was killed in our neighborhood. He was caught in the crossfire and yeah. she took all of her grief and channeled it into making sure no one in our neighborhood needs to go without food or clothing or comfort. And that way they'll never have to turn to violence. And we've got folks who are doing um, immigration justice, you know, because they recognize that this country relies on uh well-supported immigrants. And so people who are fighting for immigration law justice and making sure that there are more generous policies in our community around immigration. There are folks working to uh, address anti-Blackness in our community. There are folks working to make sure that youth and children have a safe space to process their trauma and to end cycles of violence and bullying. There's there's a million ways to plug in and any of them is worth doing. I think sometimes we get overwhelmed by all the problems in the world. And one of the things I love about the Oakland Peace Center is it's a one-stop shop. You can do pretty much anything there. Um, and it's a reminder that you don't have to do everything. As long as you choose one thing to invest yourself in, you're making the world a better place and you're doing so with a community that's doing all sorts of other things as well. Yeah. Well, actually, you are an example that you can do more than one thing. Um, <laughs> so, so tell tell us a little bit. I, I know you're you know you're you're in this place where where you're working on the book, but tell us about where the book is going and, and uh, what it will be about. Oh, sure. Um, you know, it's interesting because. I sometimes have a hard time convincing people that it's an important subject. And then there are other times people are like, oh, that's exactly what we need. So mm -hmm. I never know how it's going to land with an audience. But what I've realized is, like I said, a lot of young activists get into the work of racial justice and don't have any sort of spiritual foundation. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a problem. But one of the gifts that spirituality offers us is it gives us something larger than ourselves to rely on that's bigger than a campaign win or loss, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I have watched a lot of my favorite activist organizations begin to incorporate ancestral practices, you know, a Yoruba blessing or um, a calling to the four directions, an indigenous practice, because I work in a lot of spaces that 
uh, have a lot of black and indigenous activists. Mm -hmm. And there's something about taking the time, even in a political action, to ground ourselves in some sort of connection to our ancestors that does that same thing, mm. that helps remind us we're, some, we're part of something bigger than ourselves, that we're connected to that spiritual space, that, that those who have passed before us are there with us. And I noticed that that was encouraging and grounding and comforting to a lot of the young activists mm. who might otherwise burn out. And simultaneously, I work in a lot of religious spaces that don't always that function a little bit more out of fear than out of courage, because the world is changing so much, because there is so much going on that we don't understand. And so despite the fact that we have these religious tools in our back pocket, we don't necessarily engage in the work of transforming the world when we are actually called to do that by our faith traditions. And so the thing that strikes me about connecting with the spiritual practices of our ancestors is it forces us to connect with their stories. Mm -hmm. It helps us recognize the ways our ancestors have been, have, have tools and resources to offer us about how to transcend oppression to realize they went through things like we did and they can help us not just survive this period but do something to make the world different um, it forces us to confront when our ancestor did ancestors did things that we don't like so that we don't repeat them and it gives us some practices that can help give us a little bit of bravery to do the work of transforming the world that I think we're actually called to. So I've been digging into my own stories. I've been in wisdom circles with both people of color and white people who are thinking about what we need to learn from our ancestors, what we need to call our ancestors to account for, and what resources they have to offer us that can give us courage for the work ahead of us sounds a little bit abstract for someone who's used to carrying a picket sign and chanting, no justice, no peace. So it's a funny <laughs> journey I've been on. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm excited about what it means for giving us the strength to keep doing the work together well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, to your book. Um, and, and especially because you touch upon, you know, in the beginning uh, where you explained that you see, especially young activists that, you know they might not be grounded in spirituality yeah. and that's not an that's that's doesn't have to be a, an issue but it becomes an sometimes it it makes uh life a little bit more complicated i yeah. think um but uh, you know what what i've noticed when i walk with people uh physically but also virtually we often talk start talking about okay what drives you to yeah i'll ask you later what will drive you to walk 100 mile but very often then we also talk about religion and spirituality and then the younger generation so what do you see happening uh in your community with the younger generation so you alluded a little bit to that um so i would like to hear from you do you think the younger generation is less religious less spiritual and yes it you know um it might not be the same it might be different um so what are your thoughts around that but what do you see yeah no i think it's a great question and i it's interesting because i've been really part of where my upcoming book comes from is mm -hmm. watching younger people say hey the institutional church mosque temple yeah. whatever mm -hmm. 
um, isn't helping us do the work we know we are called to do. Mm-hmm. So that's not the space for us. And at the same time, we do want to be connected with something larger than ourselves. And so greater than ourselves. And so a lot of younger people are connecting to ancestral religious practices. And mm. I I have been really inspired by that. I also don't think we have to choose, right? I don't mm. think it's either you're a Christian or you engage in Yoruba practice, for example, um, for my friends who can trace their ancestors back to say Ghana. Um, which a number of my friends who have done DNA work who are the descendants of uh, slave, uh, enslaved people in this country, that's, that's one of the places they trace their roots back to. So, you know, I have friends who are, I have a friend who was raised Quaker, was my co-pastor in a Disciples of Christ Church, and is a Yoruban priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things are not in conflict for him because he can actually hold all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And so there's something about young people saying, we want a spiritual experience that's compatible with our call for a better world that I think we sometimes dismiss too quickly. I think it's real. I think it's there. And I think even though it looked, like you said, it might look different than those of us who grew up in a traditional church with a choir with or whatever practice we grew up with. I think there's something that they are up to that is maybe not modern, but is profound, maybe not traditional, but is actually ancient. And I think that there's something valuable to that because they're also trying to build the kind of world that will serve all of us. And and so what does that development mean for your, because you're still with the disciples? Yeah, very yeah. much so. So what does that mean for, for the disciples? You know, it's interesting because I think um, there are a lot of because you are losing, right? Oh, yeah. You're, you're, you're. I mean, it's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, uh, yeah. It is, and where we're seeing growth tends to be people of color-led churches and mm-hmm. uh, LGBTQ affirming churches and mm-hmm. churches that are doing worship in ways that are compatible with the work lives of um, younger people, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, there's a church that I love deeply that is doing really, really well in Fort Worth, Texas. It's an LGBTQ Mm. affirming church. And they have to set up their volunteer programs with the understanding that if they're focused on including young workers, Mm -hmm. they can't have volunteer programs where you sign up for six Saturdays in a row because if you're a shift worker at a department store, mm-hmm. you don't know what your schedule is going to be a week out. So for them to have adapted in ways that honor the lived experiences mm-hmm. of the young people in their church has really inspired me. So they're still engaging in great justice work and great volunteer work. They're serving their community. They hand out cook, you know, they hand out cookies on holidays to service workers. Um so, you know, if you're working uh, on the 4th of July at Starbucks, you might get a cookie from a member of that church saying, we know what it's like to have to work hard on the holidays. We just mm. wanted to share a little bit of love with you. Um, so their version of volunteering looks yeah, yeah. a little bit different, right? Because you can't necessarily commit to the same rhythm that, say, the women's guild that my mother was a part of. You mm. showed up every Wednesday, uh, the first Wednesday of the month at noon with your sack lunch to listen mm. to missionaries. 
that's not the way the world works for young women or young people in general anymore. So the churches that are making those adjustments are actually doing pretty well. Hmm. Cool. I would like to take you to my 100 mile walk because that's how this yeah. how this uh, podcast started. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, you know, what is the cost that you would be walking that for? You know, it's interesting because it was hard for me to think of the answer to that question when it was what would I walk for? But when I thought who would I walk with, mm -hmm. that became much easier. Um, I can even tell you the names of some of them. My my friends, Guadalupe Salazar and uh, Francisca Carranza and Adriana Carranza, um, all of the mostly women, but not exclusively women who are fast food workers or uh, work at um, at places at the airport or all of the or. Francisca, I got to know because she was working at a country club that locked out all of their union workers. Um, all of the folks I know who have fought tenaciously for the dignity of workers is who I would want to walk alongside because those are the conversations I want to have. And also, those are the people that I can laugh until my ribs hurt with. Um, and I know if uh, Adriana was going on that walk with me, she would hook me up with a, a cup of Pete's coffee and she would bring her four-year-old daughter along for the walk. So we would have tons of fun. So that was what I found myself mm -hmm. realizing is I know my work is grounded primarily in racial justice, but who I'd want to work with aren't necessarily activists, mm -hmm. but they're workers whose work and their commitment to each other drove them into activism. Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way that I would want Belinda to be on that walk, even though she's not a labor justice person at all. She's making sure our neighbors get fed. Um, so I think my 100-mile walk would, a lot, would look a lot like, who are the people you want to spend time with who are making the world a better place? And those are the folks who sprang to mind immediately for me. Yeah, th thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, that, you know, there are a lot of things that you do and, and you, you raise your voice uh, about. Um, still, I would like to ask you, what do you, so there are a lot of things you worry about. So what is the thing that you worry about most? What do I worry about most? Um, right now, I worry... So there's there's some I was trained up in a lot of political science and there's some conventional wisdom that there's a window every 20 years for those controversial issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the 90s, we missed our window on health on uh, health care reform and we had to wait until the Obama administration. And now we're not going to get to circle back to it and have our universal health care conversation for another 20 years, right? This notion that tw every 20 years is how often you get the big issues. And we've been leading up to it for a while, but this is the window 
for real racial justice, for reparations, for real justice, uh, for both. At, and I believe that we need to talk about racial justice in a multiracial way. And I also do believe that when we do right by our Black family and our Indigenous family, that is part of the way to addressing uh, racial injustice for immigrants as well. Mm-hmm. And now's the window. And what I worry about, so all of these amazing groups that emerged to educate themselves about racism in the wake of George Floyd's murder, book clubs and church groups and women's circles, and even uh, corporations doing studies of how systemic racism works in this country. Mm-hmm. I worry that the window is closing on white people figuring out what their role is in dismantling systemic oppression in this country. That doesn't mean everything's done for, because I think the thing that I'm not worried about, the thing that I'm confident about, is people of color have also begun to find our voice. We've begun to figure out our solidarity with each other. We've begun to figure out where to invite our white siblings into the process and where to accept that we might just need to work things out with each other. So that's fine, but as much as I'm committed to a radical vision for racial justice, I'd be sorry um, to see my white family not be a part of that uh, work. So that's the thing I worry about. I mean, And yes, I worry about the backlash because we're seeing that already. Mm -hmm. And every time there's a uh, reconstruction in this country after a major victory for people of color and particularly for black people, there's always a backlash that um, puts in place laws that harm black people and other people of color. Um, So that's also potentially on the forefront as the racial makeup of this country changes and as people of color find deeper solidarity with each other and a deeper sense of our power, I think um, that's scary for the folks who think that that means they're going to lose something. I don't think they're actually going to lose anything. I think the world's gonna get better for all of us. But for people who are trained into the notion uh, that rights are like pie, if I have more, you have less. Mm -hmm. um, This is a scary period and the potential to act out of that fear um, is pretty scary too. Hmm. Um, Is this also true for the rest of the world? You know, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation with a colleague that, um, you know, he and I both come trace our origins back to India, where there is um, something of a religious totality, well, a religious exclusivism in the current leadership. And we've seen other versions of um, xenophobia and religious exclusion in a number of countries around the world. because people are driven very much by fear and uh, totalitarians do a really good job of capitalizing on fear. So yeah, I do think it's a global phenomenon. I also see the work of showing up for each other and being in solidarity with each other as occurring in a global uh, 
um, in a global context. I know this is getting a little political, so you can edit this one out if you want to, but the movement for Black Lives is deeply committed to Palestinian liberation. Um, uh, the work that I do around anti-Blackness within the South Asian community, we're also engaging in what it means to be in solidarity with Dalit rights in, in India and addressing Islamophobia all over the world, because if we're addressing Islamophobia in our fatherland, motherland, homeland of India, as well as in the United States, we need to be paying attention to Islamophobia all over the globe and and on and on. So yes, I think that the fear-based uh, tendency towards xenophobia is a very real thing worldwide. I also think that the alternative to it where we are learning to show up for each other is also worldwide. Great. If, yeah, I, I would like to tell you that I had a conversation a couple of episodes ago with Andrea Sarsono from Human Rights Watch in Indonesia, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's doing very important work um, yes. within Indonesia as well, uh, where you see, yeah, you know, a lot of extremism in, in, yes. in many religions, uh, actually. And, and uh, yes, it's, it's very... Uh, very 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 sad um but uh, yeah i would encourage people to if they did not listen to it to to check that check out that particular episode uh human rights watch came out with a big um report about the situation in indonesia so absolutely absolutely important thank you um do you still see hope somebody recently asked me if i thought that the situation we were facing was completely insurmountable. Mm -hmm. Would I do things differently? Would I spend less time on organizing and activism? And I said, climate scientists are saying that we have already passed the point where we can undo climate damage. So we've already passed that point. Things are actually insurmountable. And that just means the work looks different. It means we have to figure out how to build community with each other in the places where the land is still arable. It means we have to figure out how to support each other um, in the midst of the, ex the religious extremism that is just going to keep getting worse as there's less land for us to survive on. So I don't know that it's a question of hope or hopelessness so much mm. as there will always be people who are figuring out how to build community so that we can all thrive, no matter how dire the circumstances are. Uh, it's just a case of finding those people and building that community alongside them. And I see people doing it all over the place. We built a community garden in the front of the Oakland Peace Center mm -hmm. that is an Afrocentric community garden that is designed for black youth to reconnect with their relationship to the land in a way that's not mediated by enslavement. And one of the unsheltered people in our neighborhood who deals with real serious mental health issues set fire to part of it. Um, and the community is figuring out how to take care of her uh, and to take care of the garden at the hmm. same time. To me, that's what the work looks like. Great. And, and, I would like really to invite everyone to, you know, um, who's worried about the world and is, is not hopeful, is, is to really 
um, read your books because I think, yes, it's critical, but there is always, always uh, hope as well. And a total different a question, and that's about uh, music, which is very important for me, actually, in my life. Um, <laughs> yes, so, especially on all those long walks. Exactly, yes, yeah. Um, if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies for a big part what you are about, which song or piece of music would that be? Yeah, there's there's a song by... And I don't even know if it's pronounced Dej Loaf or D-E-J Loaf. It's called Liberated. Um, It has been my theme song for the past year. And it really is just a playful song. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's it's a song that invites us to move our bodies and to connect with each other and to affirm and love each other and to stay away from judgment and stay in joy. Mm. And so... As hard as 2020 was, that was the song that I played. And I found myself playing it not just for myself, but every time I did an anti-racism training, every mm-hmm. time I did a workshop for folks on um, on any hard issue related to oppression, we had a dance break. Mm-hmm. Um, so the song uh, People Get Liberated is definitely my go-to song. Great. I, I will add that to... Uh, I, I made a, a Spotify... Uh, right song list of all the music um, chosen by my guests um, if you go to spotify and you go to hashtag box talk listen you you know that um, so song list should pop up and then you you know you hear songs uh, of the beatles but also of bach and um, oh, mozart um, so it's, it's yeah it's, it's actually cool so i often listen to it myself and, and then i'm reminded about the conversations that i've had with you know, very inspiring and, and great people of uh, around the world. Um, yeah, I I would like to ask you a question about uh, racial justice, actually. And my organization, uh, in, in which you know, uh, Church World Service, is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. And so we are look, we're doing a lot in terms of looking back um, and looking forward. Uh, one of the important topics, questions that we ask ourselves is, how did we do around racial justice? Mm. And the question I would like to ask you is, if you look at the NGO sector as a whole, and I know it's very difficult, but there are so many different NGOs, but I'm going to ask it anyway. That's the <laughs> <laughs> So it's the advantage of being the, 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 the interviewer, right? Uh, but if you look at the NGO sector as a whole and you look at... at you know, how did the NGO sector do um, around racial justice? What what would be your verdict? Where are you, you know? Yeah, um, and I think we could throw philanthropy into that as well. Mm. Um, yes. I think, and I think in some ways they, they come out about the same. Um, so I hate to be super judgmental and I want to be careful in how I say this, but let me say for me, racial justice isn't truly achieved until we have addressed issues of power. And I think that the intent and desire of most NGOs and the philanthropy sector is to help people of color who are facing challenges. But even in the way I say that, the power remains located 
in the NGO and in philanthropy. And so I think that the way that we go about addressing racial justice tends to be about helping individuals facing challenges and not about restructuring power dynamics. What I think, when I will see us having achieved uh, victory is when both of those sectors have moved from charity to solidarity, to recognizing a position of supporting the vision, wisdom, leadership, insights, lived experience of people who are experiencing oppression directly. Mm. Um, to me, that will be the very easy benchmark to determine success. And I think that we don't even realize the ways that we try to hold on to power uh, that get in the way of us achieving what we actually want to achieve. Well, I mean, you, you, you're. I, I see already a slogan in the, in the. <laughs> you know, from, from charity to solidarity. <laughs> uh, th- thank you for that. It, it's. I, I think that's that's really helpful, and and uh, also for my organization. Uh, but I hope for all the listeners who are working for NGOs or for philanthropy. Yes, it, it goes fast. So my last question to you is, you know, any message, invitation, question for the listeners? Yes. Um, one of my good colleagues uh, who is working with me on social media strategy, she says, sometimes we have to go slow to go fast. And I really love that because one of my mentors or one of my sources of inspiration is Adrian Marie Brown. And she talks about community organizing needing to go at the speed of relationship. And I also have been talking a lot about burnout recently because Mm -hmm. so many of us just getting through this past year and a half uh, was exhausting emotionally, spiritually, physically. And I'm aware that we're dealing with a lot of burnout. So for all three of those reasons, because sometimes we need to go slow to go fast, because we need to go at the speed of relationship to do really good sustainable organizing. And because so many of us are dealing with burnout in a world that tries to keep us going at a ridiculous pace. I'd like to ask every listener, what are you doing to prioritize relationship over product? What are you doing to slow down enough to listen to the folks who need to be listened to so that what you are generating is sustainable and not just quick? And what are you doing to make sure to take care of you so that we have you in the movement for the long haul? And I don't know if if you know your book the books you write, you know, so well by heart. But if I go to your book, Liberating Love Daily Devotional, July 5th, because that's the day that we record this. And, you know, we will share this on a later date with, with the audience. But today, July 5th, when we talk, you refer to, um, well, I, I have to say it in a Dutch way, job, job, we say job. 
16 two to four and basically the message that you're giving to the reader is today i invite you well it's not you it's it's god that's what Mm -hmm. i understood right today i invite you to reflect on how you can share my love with your friends by doing more listening and extending compassion wow well i guess that's an indication that i stay on brand (laughs) (laughs) oh um yeah, I would like to to thank you so so much for today's conversation and and you know sharing your wisdom and your stories. Um, I wish you all nothing but you know great things and the good stuff of life. Um, you know personally as well as all the work that you do. Um, yeah, thank you for who you are and what you do. Likewise, Maurice. Thank you so much for having me. Great. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram